0: Of May 7th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 617, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, on a picket line, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. <coughs> I think Michael Giltz is trying to introduce himself, but as a writer, he does not want to actually read anything that's been written. Which is kind of silly because, of course, he knows his own name and doesn't have to read it off of uh, any show notes. This is going to be a very
1: short episode. Oh, shoot! Shoot! I shouldn't have. Cur- I shouldn't have spoken. Oh well. Yes, happily uh, or unhappily, we're not members of the WGA. Uh, our show is not covered, so we can cover the writer strike without actually crossing the picket line. No worries here. But. Um, we do have some news, breaking news, that we would rip off the teletype if there was such a thing. But there isn't because no news is being generated because we can't write about it. But Sperling told me orally, no show next week. Why? Well, maybe. Maybe there's a show. Why? We don't know. Right. No, you know You
0: should subscribe to the show so that just in case there is one,
1: mm-hmm. you'll get and, it. And what's happening next week? I'm headed to Cannes. Yeah, jerk. <laughs> Headed to the south of France, and so in two weeks there will definitely be a Con special episode, and right. hopefully next week there will be as one as well, where you cover all the news from Con, talk to your Con friends about all the Con movies you've seen, and all the Con fun you're having while I'm back in America.
0: Well, the reality is, I uh, the festival starts the following day, so or two days later, so. it starts on a Wednesday with one movie. I thought it started on a Tuesday with one movie, but okay.
1: Did they move it to Tuesday? Yes, they did. All right. And then Wednesday, there's like three movies.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Yeah. So, what does that got to do with recording? Nothing. Uh, you can do it easily. <laughs> you wake up Wednesday and you got one movie, Tuesday, you got one movie to cover. I think you can fit in a podcast. So, all everybody, right, fine. you write or call Sperling and demand a podcast next week. All right. But meanwhile, while they're doing that, I'll add up the numbers for Super Bowl 57. They have revised numbers from Nielsen, who's been under a lot of pressure to count as many eyeballs as possible. And again, it's really hard to do. The Super Bowl 57, they added in another couple million or 1 million. It's now 115.1 million people watched summer all of Super Bowl 57. That's the most all time officially, though so they only started accounting for viewing outside the home, like at bars and restaurants and stuff in 2021. So if you factored that in in years past, there probably would have might have been a higher number, but this is the biggest number of all time. so that's pretty interesting.
0: I'm tempted to make a joke about Dominion voting machines. What, six months later they're coming back with this? Is this this a Dominion voter fraud?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And of course the numbers for the coronation, where the UK has a new king, a new symbolic head of the country, Uh, they don't overwhelm. They're not nearly as high as they were for the funeral of the queen, um, but they're close to where they were for the jubilee celebration of her 70th year on the throne. Now, of course, Charles is King Charles III. He was as soon as his father died, but now he has been crowned, and Camilla has been crowned Queen Camilla. By the way, she is the first former mistress of the king to become crowned queen since Anne Boleyn 490 years ago almost to the day. You have to say well done.
0: Well played.
1: I need to have a word with Camilla. Hey Camilla, you know how it ended for
0: Anne? Because it, it <laughs> did not end well.
1: Yeah, yeah. My, my brother said it must have been a heady day for her. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> hey, don't lose your head over it. <laughs> hey! <laughs> yeah, yeah. There we go. But so that's that, that was exciting. My mom is 94 years old. This is the third coronation she has witnessed and remembers. You have to be at least 86 to have been alive during the last coronation but she was eight years old in 1937 when her father woke her up in the dead of night like four or five in the morning and they sat by the radio listening to the coronation of King George VI of the king's speech fame of course as Sperling mentioned off the air and so she remembers that her mom not a morning person. Do not wake me up at four or five in the morning. So they were up huddled around the radio. And of course, 16 years later, she was 24 uh, or uh, uh, 16 years later. Uh, yeah, she was 24 um, when the queen was crowned in 1953. And now it's a 70 years later after that. We've got a new king. So very exciting. Uh, We watched it all. Believe me, I was up at 4.30 in the morning, so I'm tired. If I lose my train of thought, you'll understand why. But I do know there's no episode, uh, no classic Showbiz Sandbox episode next week. Keep checking your inbox. Keep checking the website. Keep checking your feeds to find out if there's a special con episode next week. And I want to know, what are we going to talk about this week?
0: Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're covering the latest on the writer strike. Strike, strike,
1: strike. strike. Yeah, that's
0: right. Disney and Apple are playing hardball with showrunners. Writer, creator Adam Conover called out the massive paychecks of David Zaslav and other corporate heads. You know, Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, Late night TV has already gone dark and the studios are accusing the union of feather betting. That's right, (laughs) feather betting. Can you believe it? How dare they? Wait, um. What is featherbedding exactly? Because I'm not really sure I know what that really means. But in any case, happily, we have the entertainment and technology lawyer, not to mention a contributor to Puck. That's right, Jonathan Handel will be joining us to explain what's going on and where this is all headed. On Inside Baseball, we'll discuss music from Ed Sheeran's trial victory to AI robots taking over streaming and the newest members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A lot has happened in music. In fact, let me just tell you, you know, what you should do with this episode, because like if if there was ever it, it either rains or pours episode, it's like Noah's Ark pouring right now because we've got the writer's strike. We got this music stuff. We have just the regular news. We've got box office. I don't even know how we're going to cover it all. So you may need to break your listening up this week into two or three or nineteen episodes or nineteen, uh, you know, sessions.
1: I but wasn't sure. Way. I wasn't sure what Puck was. And I, there's a humor magazine, a literary magazine, of course, lots of characters. And I finally figured out it's a digital media company that tries to cover the four centers of power: Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Washington, Wall Street. All right, it's been around since uh, uh, 2021, so about two years, really, um, and not even two full years. Uh, but good for them. They've got 25 staff members, 200,000 email subscribers with 20,000 people paying $13 a month for all access reporting.
0: Yes. Aren't and we I can generous? Tell you, yeah. Well, here, that's, here's, that's why I brought it up. <laughs> well, and to give you some sense, Dave, they're read by uh, such influential people that when uh, Mark Milley, the, you know, went and, and toured certain things, he brought Three journalists, one of them was from Puck. I was like, really? Wow. Okay. I guess I guess they are read by influential people. But Uh in any case, during Inside Baseball, we're going to discuss music. And of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, you know, we always turn it over to entertainment journalist Michael Giltz, who does not work for Puck. He's going to fill us in on last week's box office.
1: That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. It's Monday afternoon right now. It's uh, two o'clock, a little after two Eastern Standard Time. And Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, the news gets better all weekend long. They kept revising up their numbers, just added another $8 million to the worldwide box office. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe film, is, of course, the number one movie around the world. It opened up to $289 million worldwide. To create excitement and news, they're like, well, yes, but we have to see what kind of legs it has. Well, it had good reviews and good audience scores, so it should be just fine, I think. The first movie grossed $775 million. The second one grossed $863 million. This one needs to do that just to triple its budget of 250 million. So it needs to match those two. And I'm pretty sure it will do that pretty easily. If it just has a, a three ratio, you know, gross is three times what it made in its opening week, it'll be just fine. And I think it'll do that. It's helped along by China, where it opened up to $28 million. That's about 60% of what the last Guardians of the Galaxy movie made. But given the track record of Hollywood in China in the last year, uh, they're very happy to see that. So, They're happy
0: to see anything out of China these days. I mean, that's it's,
1: that's right. So it's, yeah. it's gravy these days. That's what they say. You don't depend on China, but you're happy when it arrives. So that is the number one movie around the world: two hundred eighty nine million dollars, and doing great still. The Super Mario Brothers movie. These are the movie Hollywood makes right now: big movies with big recognizable names. Though remember, Guardians of the Galaxy, pretty darn obscure Marvel property. When Marvel? The first you film. mean Nintendo? I mean. No, Guardians of the Galaxy, a pretty obscure Marvel property when it first came out. Uh, Super Mario Brothers, of course, is much better known. Now Guardians is a big property, but it wasn't when they launched any more than Iron Man was, particularly. Most people were like, who? You know, Guardians of the Galaxy, not well known. So that was a big roll of the dice. The Super Mario Brothers movie, they had a flop live action version. So again, this was not a slam dunk just because it's one of the most successful video games of all time. But it's definitely the most successful movie adaptation of a video game of all time. Mario Brothers, the movie, $132 million this week, $1.5 billion worldwide. To be precise, $1,555,000,000 worldwide. Uh, this movie's just tearing up. It's just doing just really, really well. This just is to this- give
0: you some sense, though, mm-hmm. if the movie made $550 million, they'd be like, <laughs> wow, a hit! It made yeah. a billion dollars more than that.
1: Yes, yes. No, it only cost about $100 million to make. And of course, this just helps the game, it helps the franchise, it helps the theme parks, it helps everything. They love that sort of synergy. But the important thing is they made a decent movie that people are enjoying, even a lot of people who have never played the video game like me. Maybe I've twiddled it once or twice, but I'm not a, a player of Super Mario Brothers. So those two big movies are doing great, and Hollywood is happy. In China, they've got a hit film. It's called Godspeed. This is a family comedy road trip. It grossed $67 million this week. It's at just a shade under $100 million. We have no idea what the budget was, but uh, it's doing just fine. Also staying in China, Born to Fly, that Top Gun-like movie, that made $52 million this week. It's at $93 million worldwide. Uh... When Japanese- you say Top
0: Gun-like, if you watch the trailer for this movie, <laughs> it's Top Gun. It is literally ripped off from Top Gun.
1: There's so many years, or all these years, I see multiple translations of the title. That's a Chinese romance about second chance in love. That made $17 million this week and had a good hold. It's at $36 million. Um, I'm pretty sure Detective Conan Black... Oh, no, that did not open in China. Uh, that's about it for the China property. Well, there's the Procurator, a Chinese film about lawyers. That's pretty modest so china's doing well you got two or three solid hit films from the most recent holiday that they had the godspeed of course being practically the biggest of them right you know it'll be
0: really interesting is to see on may 19th when fast x opens up uh whether uh it does well or not because
1: where you mean worldwide in china China. Mm -hmm. and and do we care as much like you say they can't depend on anything there anymore so you just want to see if hollywood is back
0: yeah, yes, correct because essentially what happened during the and this was told to me by some of the the Chinese Film Bureau people uh is that during the pandemic uh when movies opened uh they certainly didn't let any uh imported movies into China. Uh they really kind of drilled into the public you need to support the local films. And so Well, that's always
1: Well, that's always been the case.
0: Yes, so, but they really kind of
1: uh huh. I don't think that was a secret. They, they yeah. wouldn't release any Hollywood films. And when they did, eventually they say, okay, you can come out tomorrow. <laughs> so right. They had no chance to promote it. And there was a strong drumbeat of like support local movies and where if you didn't go to see a local movie, they're like, oh, you really want a ticket to that? <laughs> so it became a little, a little uncomfortable. But anyway, back to the box office, Evil Dead Rise, the latest in the Evil Dead franchise that made $53 million this week. Am I looking at it right? Yes. That's at $115 million worldwide in India and around the world. We have Pony and Selvan part two. This is a Tamil historical epic. It's a big epic film from India. Uh, we're catching up on the boxes. I'm not sure exactly how much it made this week, but its total now is $37 million worldwide. Last week, we reported it made $7 million. Maybe that was just on opening day. It opened on a Sunday or something, or or we didn't have all the box office figures in. Maybe it made more than that last week, but we do know that the total now is $37 million. Uh, back on the box office, the first slam dunk that movie Sperling's waiting to see in North America, that grossed $20 million this week. It's at $250 53 million dollars worldwide we link to comscore we look at box office mojo and profits we look at the trades we look everywhere we can individual charts for some countries wikipedia has been the best source for the latest info on the first slam dunk why because they do a good job in general Sort of. But more importantly, there is some fan of the first slam dunk who pays attention and updates that that particular entry all the time with the latest info. And so that particular entry has been a very predictable and reliable source of up to date info on the worldwide box office for the first slam dunk. And that's why I donate money each year to Wikipedia. It's a great resource with a really good track record of accuracy. Uh, Suzume is another animated film. That's a Japanese animated film as well. It made $18 million this week. It's at $320 million Worldwide, John Wick, Chapter 4, the best Wick of them all. That is at $417 million worldwide. And in Japan, I think we missed this, but we have the latest figures for Detective Conan, Black Iron Submarine. It's the 26th film in this animated series, or anime series, I imagine. It made about $10 million this week, roughly maybe, and it's at $65 million worldwide. The last week's gross is a rough estimate, but we're pretty sure it's made about $65 million worldwide. Then there's one of those movies that sort of looks like a hit, but it wasn't really. That's Dungeons and Dragons. It made $9 million this week. It's at $203 million worldwide and slowing down. I don't think there are any big territories left, but it cost $150 million to make. So we shouldn't look for Dungeons and Dragons 2 anytime soon, but they made a good movie and the people who saw it seemed to like it. That may be the same case for Air, uh, are they happy with on Amazon with Air? It costs whatever. We don't know what it costs. We know they paid about $90 million to get it. Then they spent money to release it theatrically worldwide. It's at $82 million, and it comes out on Amazon this week. So on May 12th, about 37 days after it hit theaters, it will be available on Amazon. But they got a lot of attention. I'm aware of it. I may not have even known it was going to be on Amazon. It's big stars. They're happy it got a theatrical release. Is that a loss leader for them, or will they break even with the money they spent to uh, release it worldwide? I had a pretty big ad campaign, that's for sure. If it grosses $90 million or ends up with 100000000 million, they'll only get about, what, $40 million, $45 million, maybe $50 million from that?
0: Yes, but uh, at the same time, they don't have to remarket it for uh, home entertainment because they, they've marketed it already. It's- right,
1: but they would never have spent that much money to market it on Amazon. They just would have put a lot of ads on Amazon, mostly. Yes, correct. Um, You know, but, you know, it is a big property with big names and they would have done TV ads and some other stuff to promote it. But yes, of course, I'm just wondering whether that 40, 45 million is enough to cover a theatrical release and the marketing budget. Will they break even having done that? That might make them happy alone, right? Well, let's put it this
0: way. That's part of the problem. That we'll talk about during the writer strike is they don't tell you all like the yeah, hey, well, well no we don't
1: we don't know how profitable no I'm not I'm not asking for info on how much how profitable it would be for them or how valuable I'm saying how much did they spend to release it theatrically and oh I think market they spent
0: it. too much I think they probably spent 120 million
1: dollars all in at least beyond what they spent on the movie what the no, hell no, s- no 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 that's, no that's no 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 we're not talking about the movie we're talking about what did they spend to market it and the cost. Of releasing it theatrically. Oh, I think they
0: probably spent twenty million dollars marketing that
1: movie. That's it. Yeah, that's probably it. And what about the cost to release it theatrically worldwide in a digital format?
0: Oh, that's much less. I mean that that if they spent three million dollars doing that worldwide, I'd be shocked.
1: Really? So maybe, now
0: maybe five million. I mean, just because it's and
1: it's, how does that compare to say ten years ago when you weren't doing a digital print and you didn't have oh, to pay it was expensive. and you had to pay? Mm-hmm. Think like about what? it this
0: way: it used to be fifteen hundred dollars per print right okay and now it's like could be as low as 50 dollars. it's probably more like 200 dollars a print now so, so what,
1: what they might have spent years ago would have been how much like
0: like 10 million dollars for a wide release 15 20 million dollars for a wide release because you're Worldwide. spending yeah you know like a thousand prints at a thousand at dollars think about that that's you know it's a lot that's of a- money
1: but how, how much of a difference does that make when they are making their decisions about you know releasing these movies theatrically the cost of actually physically releasing a movie is so much less it's only a million dollars a thousand screens yes, a okay. thousand prints at a thousand dollars is only one million dollars so it would be 1.5 million if you were on uh, if it was a uh, $1,500 per print and if it was 2,000 screens it would only be you know 2, 3 million but so that's what you were sort of talking about 2,000 screens maybe you'd be talking about a couple million dollars and that's dramatically less than it was you're saying than it was a few years ago you're saying it was three million dollars a few years ago and now it's only five hundred thousand dollars or something
0: yeah it's between five hundred and like three or five three million dollars to in the u.s in the u.s why do you think deluxe and technicolor joined forces because they were you know they were billion dollar companies and now they're not
1: Mm-hmm. so it's a lot cheaper to release these movies theatrically it makes your people happy you're going to market anyway you're going to want to give a big marketing budget to a film starring matt damon and ben affleck just to keep them happy so it's a much it's not as big a roll of the dice anymore as it would have been you're saving a few million dollars at least with not having to do physical prints
0: yes at least
1: well you said 1500 dollars a print and that would be 1.5 million dollars yeah so so, so that's now you're saving 1.5, you got to pay something per, per 1,000 prints, correct? Right. Well, yeah, air is not on 5,000 screens, is it? No. Well, anyway, so that movie may be a very good gamble for them to have released it theatrically. They're certainly going to make 40, 50 million dollars in their pocket. And if they spent 30 million dollars, well, then they made 20 million and they get to show the movie on Amazon just. 37 days after it hit theaters. Everybody's a winner. What about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. This movie cost about $30 million to make. Got good reviews, good word of mouth, but it's been a pretty modest earner. $6 million it made this week. It's at $13 million worldwide. Not a huge gamble, and it will be a valuable member of your film library, but uh, not the success story you were hoping for. Back in Japan, they have a TV show called Tokyo Mare, M-E-R. It's Tokyo Mobile Emergency Room. It's kind of like... Emergency or Grey's Anatomy, but on the road, they're always running around to burning buildings and and cars hanging off cliffs and saving lives. It's very, very dramatic. I watched the trailer. They made about 10 or 12 episodes in 2021. Now they've turned it into a big movie. And it has opened up. It made about $5 million this week. It's at $10 million and counting. Russell Crowe's movie is, is chugging along. The Pope's Exorcist hit $66 million. If it had made $666 million, they'd really be talking. Um, and uh, Guy Riches the Covenant made $15 million so far and there's a few other movies bopping along uh, but nothing much to say so the Worldwide Box Office is chugging along we got big hits Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 the Super Mario Brothers movie in China they've got Godspeed Evil Dead is a good low budget horror film uh, animated films from Japan are really doing well all over the years. John Wick did so well; they may make a chapter five. Though, really, walk away. I know it made more money than the first three, but I think you've pretty much done everything you can. Just let it be. Don't make a jump. Are you
0: trying back. to say that he should? Uh, that Keanu Reeves should say? People say I should go away. Yeah, <laughs> I think I should go away.
1: <laughs> well, those studios wish the writer strike would go away, but that's not going to happen, is it?
0: Uh, not anytime soon. And uh, actually, we have someone here to talk about that. In fact, longtime listeners of the show, well, certainly longtime listeners of the show will know Jonathan Handel. But if you have been listening for the past year or two, you have probably heard us mention Jonathan Handel probably every other show. And to the point where at CinemaCon with the writer strike looming, I was asked several times, how come you haven't had Jonathan Handel on? And I said, well, (laughs) because we're going to need to call him when the writer's strike." And People would say, do you think the writer's are going to? I said, no, I I don't think they're going to strike. I know they're going to strike. And that's when we're going to need to call Jonathan Handel. And sure enough, Jonathan Handel is here to join us. He is an, well, actually, Jonathan, why don't I just hand it over to you and you can tell us what you do.
2: Sure, why not? And, you know, the, 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 but the lesson of that is, you know, uh, call Jonathan Handel and he appears, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it's not like the line from Shakespeare. I can, one character says, uh, I can call, uh, uh, demons from the deep and the other character responds. Yes. But when you call, do they come? <laughs> uh, is which what which, which, which play is that? Oh God! Oh, sorry, you, sorry, you, sorry. You, <laughs> sorry. You were looking so <laughs>
1: erudite and I hear I ruined it. I know.
2: Well, yeah, but you you punctured the tissue thin uh, layer of erudition that I wear from day to day.
1: And you are so an I, entertainment I, lawyer
2: and a journalist. And I am an and a journalist. I'm an entertainment lawyer and a journalist. Uh, I for ten years from 2010 and 2020, I was a permalancer for the Hollywood Reporter. Wrote 1,400 stories for them, about three a week, while practicing law. Uh, but I and I am now. Uh very proud to be a contributor to Puck, PUCK, which is a subscription newsletter available at Puck.news. Uh, I think they have free trial, you know, seven day free trial and a one article free trial and all of that. so you can see if it's to your liking uh, uh, because it is uh, paywalled, and the reason for that is they have to pay their journalists as I uh, am forever reminding them. Uh, but it is a, uh, it's, it's a wonderful combination of Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Uh, D.C. D.C., thank you, yes. And uh, they recently added uh, fashion as a uh, vertical as well. So it's sort of, you know, power centers and cultural power centers. Uh, And media is, you know, media independent of Hollywood is also one. And you've got about two
1: dozen people on staff, so that's great news. They're able to pay those people, keep them working. And so it's proven a success. It's been around for about a year and a half now.
2: That's right. That's right. And it is, you know, the, I mean, there's a very, you know, to, to talk about media for, for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not irrelevant to what we're uh, going to be talking about in terms of the writer's strike. Uh, you know, media of all sorts, not just entertainment media, but, uh, also news media are very challenged by the internet and by the, uh, the, the internet ethos, two aspects in particular. One is that, uh, content should be free, which is just not a sustainable business model. Uh, And the other is the disaggregation of content. People are interested in reading an article, not in subscribing to the whole newspaper for a year, that kind of thing. Uh, And of course, people want everything everywhere all at once.
1: And it is. And and it it is. is. I I have not printed an article in years. The second an article goes up, it is reprinted, multiple fake websites that just grab it, often with my name on it. I'll find it all over the net. Just the whole article. Sometimes they'll have two or three graphs and link to me to hope to get a hit. Other times they just reprint the whole thing and it's just all automated. It's not because they thought my article was particularly interesting, but it's all, it's everywhere immediately for free on these websites that just want to get a little traffic. And there's no way to stop it. You couldn't even begin to whack-a-mole it because it's all automated and overseas and there's just absolutely right. nothing you can do about it. It's speaking, very frustrating. Speaking of which. Uh, That's
2: why a lot of daily newspapers have gone out of business. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, speaking of which,
0: uh, my daughter uh, ordered Death of a Salesman, the Arthur Miller play. She's reading it in class. She ordered it. It came from Amazon, and it was this big, giant book. Oh, she
1: she didn't look at what she was buying.
0: Underlined, and I said, what is, this is not the, it is a
2: counterfeit version of the book.
1: Of course, there's all over the place on Amazon, and they don't care because they make money.
2: (laughs) It's the sequel the sequel to death of a salesman is, you know, death of a publisher and death of a retailer.
1: (laughs) And permalancer. Uh, I like that phrase. I was a permalancer for the New York Post and the New York Daily News, I guess. I worked for them. They expected my work every week. They just didn't put me on staff. But anyway, we're getting away. We've got writers on our brain. Newspapers have been devastated. Magazines have been devastated. It's very hard to make a living as a writer. And the same story can be told in Hollywood. The Writers Guild has gone on strike. The DGA is looming up next. And we've got Jonathan Handel here to give us an overview. Uh, let, let us tell you what we think the writer's perspective is and tell us how good a job we're doing. I feel like the writers are saying... Our industry has dramatically changed and COVID kept us from tackling these issues the last time around. We're working harder. We're making less money with dramatically less chance of making money on the back end or down the road with residuals. It's becoming harder and harder just to make a living. We're not Uber drivers, for God's sake, And studios are turning writing from a job to a gig worker economy where we're always hustling and now barely getting by. Plus, We'd like some transparency on the data so we know who's actually watching our TV shows and movies, but that's just not happening.
0: Well, and the studios are saying... Our industry oh. has dramatically changed and we got <laughs> destroyed during COVID. I don't know why they sound like that. Neither uh, but do na- I. N- Now we're losing money on streaming. Can you look at it? $10 billion. In any case, I need a raise. Uh, come back to us when we're actually making a profit. Again, they always say that. DVDs, oh, we're not making a profit. Oh, and if we're, we're, we are we're ordering fewer episodes, which we are ordering fewer episodes and we need fewer writers to create them. I mean, duh, we don't need 50 writers to create six episodes. Uh, we're not padding the writing rooms ju- just for you. Uh, so you can get a paycheck for and uh, gig workers writers have always been gig workers. And Oh, by the way, uh, we're not sharing any viewership data. So forget about that.
2: That's basically where, well, this is, these are, you know, each of you have given such good summaries that I'm, I can log off down. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's what's left for me, but uh, you know, I will start uh, because Mike, Michael, before we started recording said it was great that I'm going to be able to talk about current events. So I'm going to frustrate him by talking about 2017. And we will talk about 2007, 08 as well, the last strike. But 2017 was the first round of nego- of They negotiate every three years; they, they renegotiate the contracts. Um, and that was the first round where writers started to say, uh, we're, "We're starting to say, you know, look, this uh, peak TV thing isn't working for us. We're not, we're not earning that much money." And 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 by the way, you're right. 2020, uh, because of COVID, the negotiations were, you know, sort of foreshortened and. This strike would have happened in 2020 if if COVID hadn't interrupted, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and it's viewed by the leadership as sort of a lot of unfinished business from three years ago. But six years ago, the writers were starting to feel a pinch, they said, and everyone said, well, how the heck can that possibly be? This is a peak TV. I mean, there's so many new series that, you know, that, I mean, uh, television critics are having – uh, you know mental breakdowns <laughs> they're,
1: they're, to keep they're apologizing i can't watch
2: even the good shows yeah <laughs> i can't watch even the good shows i you know i mean talk about underpaid writers it's like you know suddenly you have to watch you know gazillion new shows and you know is the newspaper paying you more i don't think so uh and audiences were having nervous breakdowns oh look at all these shows and you're just your head is whirling and what platform is it on and what show is it have you watched it no i haven't even heard of that show how could it be that the writers were having a problem? Well. I asked a question when I was working at the Hollywood Reporter at that time. I asked myself a question that nobody was asking. And the question was this. We know that there are uh, are just a heck ton of new episodes, uh, of new, excuse me. Uh, We know that there are just a heck ton of new shows. But we also know that these shows are shorter seasons than the network standard uh, that had once been 39 and then 22. 26 and, and became 22. That's right. Um, how many, you know, if one thing is going up, the number of series, but another thing is going down, the number of episodes per series, how many episodes are produced in aggregate of, of scripted television across all series in a year? Well, when one number goes up and the other number goes down, you do the multiplication, the result can be bigger. Smaller or the same, depending upon the proportion in which the numbers so shift. So you called FX. So I called <laughs> FX. I, that's exactly right. I called FX because FX was the ones who released the statistics and the pretty graphs every year of the number of new series on different platforms. And I called FX and and said, uh, you know, you have a number of episodes. And they screamed at me. Yeah. <laughs> uh. They, they, he actually screamed at me and he said, you expect us to count episodes? I'm like, dude, dude, just ask it. And this, this must have been John
0: Landgraf, who is the
2: person who coined the term Peak TV. Well, it wasn't John. It was someone in the PR department, okay. somebody, one of the publicists. And I don't know who, and he certainly was not going to put me through to John, uh, you know, asking, asking that question. So I asked myself, well, where the hell can I find this data? And I lit upon what might seem like a, a strange choice, The Bunch African American Studies Center at UCLA. Ah. The reason for that is I knew that they put out periodic studies where they were coding episodes, episode by episode, for racial representation. Directing, writing,
1: acting. uh,
2: That's right. That's right. Uh, And so I knew that if they were examining each episode individually, that they could surely give me raw data just on the number of episodes there were on different platforms. And they did. And what I found was in 2011 through 2015, the latest data available, uh, that, and this was 2017 when I was writing for THR, the the piece, we called the piece, uh, The Tricky Economics of Peak TV. And here's why. The number of series had shot up by 50% in that four-year period. The average season size had plummeted by 35%, by 33%, whatever, from 19 to 13 episodes per season. The number of writers working in television, according to Writers Guild data, was 20%. So 50% uh, more series and 20% more writers working in TV. But the number of episodes, the work for them to actually do and get paid for, had actually briefly dipped. And at the end of four years was only up by 7%. 20% more writers and only 7% more work for them to do because writers are hired by the series. And so that brings in the frothiness and brings new writers into the system. But they're paid by the work that they do, which is essentially the uh, it's essentially proportional to the number of episodes. They get paid a weekly fee and a fee for each script that they write. But right, And it uh, used to be with twenty
0: two episodes, you know, you'd have like, let's say, twelve writers, like half a dozen writers
2: in a, in a room on on a show like half a dozen, not twelve, but half a dozen. yeah, and you and you'd each have a six or perhaps a some people would have a six or five, seven episode guarantee. right. But you know just to put a bow on it, though, the, what I what I found from the from the data that i looked at and from those results was a fundamental disconnect in the labor market that supply was being driven by a different factor than demand. Supply was being driven by the frothiness of the increase in the number of series, while demand was being driven by the actual aggregate number of episodes, uh, you know, to be to be done, the work to be done. Uh, Variety uh, issued a report uh, a few weeks ago to their Behind their paywall uh, at VIP service, uh, that up among other things updated my results from 2017 to 2022. Uh, Variety found that the number of series increased by I forget 10, 15 percent, something still you know, something growing, still growing, not at the crazy rate, but still growing. The number of writers working in television was stable, and the number of episodes had had declined 5%, the number of hours of television, which is a related measure, but is affected by the mix between half-hour comedies and one-hour dramas, uh, had, was basically stable. Uh, so, and that's a rel- that measure is relevant also because you get paid more for one hour than a half hour. So you sort of want to look at the number of episodes and you want to look at the number of hours. Uh, so there's been a little more, I mean, there hasn't been, there's been stabilization in the number of writers brought into the system uh, and decline, a slight decline in the amount of, still in the amount of work for them to do. The, the season length declined in that five-year period from uh, about 12 and a fraction to uh, 10.2, uh, which is half the rate of, or a third of the rate of decline during the period that I measured, but it's still a significant decline. Uh, but it's stabilizing at a point where when you get staffed, yay, I got hired on a show, um, you show up. And there's only if you're a baker, there's only half a loaf to work on, because it's a 10-episode series, not a 22-episode series. And let's put that in chronological uh, terms. If you get staffed on a 22-episode series, you have 40 weeks of work, and that's great. That's a year. A year has 52 weeks, but you know you have your summer, you have your vacations, your summer vacation. You have time, an extended summer vacation, but you have time during that summer vacation. To, to work on your spec pilot and hopefully one day become a showrunner yourself if you do other writing poetry plays movies whatever you can do that um you can see your family uh that maybe hasn't seen you with you know for late nights in the writer's room that kind of thing As that's and and by the way the other thing is important is that you get notified at the end of the season of writing you get notified in fairly short order a month or so in the uh, old days in the be, old days the old day well even on the 22 today i think uh you get notified of whether the series is going to be picked up because uh you know the writers room close you know you're the the production the 40 weeks close sometime in april or may and they're going to pick you up or not for september because uh, the again i'm talking networks. Oh, oh networks yeah 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 network.
1: but for everybody but else whatever, yeah
2: no 22 episode network series yeah. the, the the smaller number that still remain it's a it's a business it's a it's a work style you work you know basically the whole year and you get told in short order whether you have another year of work it's predictable the 10 episode series you have at best 20 weeks of work maybe less with these with the mini rooms uh, that we that we'll, we can talk more about and Plus, so first of all, that's not a year's worth of work. And what do you do with the rest of it? Well, you know, you say, well, no, what, Maybe they give them two ep- two series deals. Well, sure. I mean, you know, I'd be a great writer for a gay series set in Los Angeles or set in Boston in the, you know, in a somewhat earlier era. Entertainment
1: lawyer by yeah. day, fight, crime fighter by night.
2: Whatever it is. Exactly. A law show. But, you know, what's... 20 weeks is long enough that there aren't that many shows that don't overlap with the 20 weeks, but there you might find some. And, oh, gee, it's a show about the African-American experience in 1850 on the uh, eve of the Civil War. Well, I'm not exactly the right writer for that. Uh, this is radio. I'm a white guy. Uh, I'm a gay guy. I'm a lawyer. I was in tech before law school. There are things that I know. Uh, I do not... No, I'm not a historian and I'm not African-American. And so writers are not interchangeable is the point. So, you, you know, how do you solve this problem? Uh, and the answer is, I don't know. It's a very hard problem. Um, the Writers Guild, as uh, Sperling, as you mentioned, once uh, alluded to, wants minimum staffing levels. They want, for example, their, their current demand is that a 10-episode series uh, would be staffed with eight writers. Now, that's crazy. But you you always ask for more than you think you can get. But the studios won't even wouldn't even guarantee. You know, you say, can we split the baby four, three? And the studios are like, no. Some people are auteurs, some showrunners. They want to write all the scripts themselves, or maybe they want just one or two other writers. We can't guarantee it at any minimum, and it's and it's not an invalid argument. Uh, but the writers' argument is not invalid either. That this is creating a real problem. The Guild wants um, also uh, minimum duration of employment for at least a subset of the writers who are staffed on the show. Now, that's a more compelling issue, a uh, more compelling, I mean, it's a more, the studios have less of an argument against that, I think, than, uh, than uh, they do against the minimum staffing. And the reason is this, if a writer, a, a junior writer in particular, doesn't get the opportunity to, uh, part- to, to be, told you have to do a production rewrite because the actor says the scene isn't working and you have to do it in the next hour and a half. If you don't get that experience, the experience of working with directors and actors and department heads or the experience in post-production of working with editors. The editor says, we're going to, Oh, we'll, we'll cut that line or we'll, we'll just, we'll cut away from like, no, you can't cut that line or even cut away from, from the character speaking it. Cause that line pays off in the third season. And the editor was like, Oh hell, I didn't really realize <laughs> that. Well, That's why I'm the guardian of the, of the story. I'm the writer. Uh, without getting that kind of experience, younger writers have a much harder time climbing the career ladder and becoming more senior writers and better paid writers and eventually becoming showrunners.
1: They've never showrunners. seen a set, much less worked on it. You know, they're, 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 right. in, this, I mean, the, they're in the staff room. So to, to clarify… It seems like yeah. there's a lot more TV, so many more new shows. But in fact, when you look at episodes, which is actually the work that you have to do, create an episode, uh, there's only a little bit more and there's a lot more writers in the system. Even worse, that work.
2: There's no more, there's no more episodes. The episodes are have not increased at all. Oh, I thought they had green just a titch. Like there were well, they increased the titch for five eight, eight years ago, but in the last five years, they actually haven't increased in wages.
1: So there there's no, uh, the episodes are not increasing. So the actual work that needs to be done is, is flat, even though there's a lot more right. shows and the work is apportioned out in ways that are really bad for writers. Instead of working most of the year, you only work a third of the year and you're not getting experience on the set. And right. worst of all, The golden rainbow, that that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the thing you're working for. Uh, In the old days, you'd write a script, you'd write an episode, you'd get a credit, and when it would rerun on cable and TV, you got more money. You got residuals for years to go. And so when you weren't working, you still had this modest but steady stream of income that helped you actually live and survive. Nowadays, all of that is dried up, and we always talk about, you know, you know, physical dollars turning to digital dimes. Well, it's dollars to pennies. Now there's no,
2: well, that's not, that's not quite fair. What well, are they but talking no, about they going happen. from
1: thousands of dollars to like a hundred dollars for residuals? Well, well wait yeah, a second. They, that, they, well, let him just, talk.
2: Let's just, uh, let me, let me let um, the initial, the initial years. So you, they, the formulas are very different um, for a network show that then, well, we're know, talking streaming. Day, yeah. yeah. Yes. No, no. Yeah. The formulas are different for a network show that back in the day, as you said, would then get syndicated if it were a successful right. show, okay? Now, it's important It's important to acknowledge, you know, a lot of network shows were canceled after two, three,
1: you know, seasons. That's true, but they, have- but they were also rerun regularly during the year. They would show them two or three times, even if the show was canceled. They actually got re- Nowadays, they don't almost ever do reruns because nobody watches them. So reruns have right. really fallen off a cliff.
2: Well, well reruns, reruns, if you were lucky, lo- reruns were not every, not every episode. So let's, let's talk about this in de- some detail, Okay. okay. Uh, A network show um, of 22, 26, or even 39 episodes, not every one of those episodes is going to get rerun. No. uh, uh, On the network. On the network. On the network. So hopefully at least some of my episodes, the episodes that I wrote, get rerun, and then I get a lucrative residual. Uh, Hopefully the show is successful and lasts for more than three seasons and then gets sold into syndication, which was secondary broadcast off-network. and later on, syndication was something that basic cable, like um, TBS, would buy programs, network programs, and, and, and play them. Um, in those instances, I would get an additional residual. Uh, it was better in broadcast syndication than in ca- basic cable syndication, but there's still, as the one mode shifted to the other, there still was syndication. In addition, a successful show would get sold into foreign, and i get a residual for that. The way it works... In, and and those residuals would be paid quarterly, uh, you know, as the broadcasting was done, uh, and the residuals uh, in some cases were based in part on my initial compensation, uh, you know, or, or or roughly proportionate to the scale compensation, two thirds of scale or something like for a network broadcast, uh, roughly speaking, um, and in other cases the the syndication and and for example. Uh, there were there were related formulas and different formulas, but the formulas captured the fact that some shows were successful and others were not. You got more in success than in a show that was not successful. In streaming, ah, uh, is completely different. You you work on a show that's now again we're not talking about shows that were made for network and then show up on streaming like Gilmore Girls, um, yeah, you know Gilmore Girls or something. But we're talking about shows made for Netflix, Stranger Things, Stranger Things, Stranger Things, right, Stranger Things. So the residual is, is a stranger thing, in fact. Um, the residual is paid once a year. It is significant in the first year and declines percentage by the, – there's a percentage factor that declines year by year. Uh, comparing apples to oranges is hard. Um, it's It's certainly possible, for example, that a show – that is not success- particularly successful, but nonetheless stays on the platform, and you only get the residual if they take the, re- they show off the platform altogether. Uh, you and know and they're head. doing that more and more. They- more. <laughs> well, that, and they are, that's right. Now canceling the show doesn't cancel the residual right. as long as the show is still on the platform. But if they take it out of the library, then there's no further residual. Uh, and they are doing that more and more and moving unsuccessful shows to uh, places like Pluto, uh, which is a different model and pays lower residuals. Um, in it, it certainly is conceivable to me that a show that lasts, say, only two or three seasons on network, versus a show that lasts two or three seasons on streaming and stays on the streaming platform, it's conceivable. I don't know for sure that the streaming residual could be, uh, you know, proportionate or even potentially, you know, higher, because that three that three season show, two say a, a two season show on network is not would not have gotten syndicated, would not have gotten foreign sales. Right um and after the two seasons would not have gotten uh network reruns either so that's but that's a different that's one example but a show that's moderately successful let alone a show that's very successful the way the formula works um the residuals for wednesday which is a a super hit are no greater than the residuals for let's take a hypothetical show called tuesday (laughs) that no one ever watched (laughs) i love tuesday you love Tuesday, but no one else watched it. And yet the residuals for Tuesday would be the same as the residuals for Wednesday. Well, but here and they're not paid on Wednesday or Tuesday. They're paid once a year. But here's the rub.
0: If, if, I'm, if you're the writer and I'm the studio head or I'm like Ted Sarandos, I'm not telling you how popular either show was. So it's not like you can come back to me and complain because we're kind of telling you that it's, that it's successful because we're ordering another season of Wednesday, but not Tuesday but you don't know well, how a little successful.
2: More, yeah, we don't know how successful. There's a, so let's 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 get to that. There is there's a little more leakage of information now than that there was, and then then your then your premise suggests. I mean, top ten shows, they the the network the the streamers rather cherry pick the kind of data and the kind of shows uh, that they'll release data for, and they cherry pick who they'll release it to. Some data is released uh, publicly. I mean, I get a press release every week from Netflix, listing their top 10 shows. Um, but other data might be, if you're a, a showrunner that they really are in love with, you might be able to get more information than a showrunner that they're maybe a little more lukewarm Probably on. Probably not a lot, though. Um, not a lot. Absolutely not a lot. Yeah. That, absolutely not a lot. By and large, there there is not transparency. Now, the Writers Guild is not focusing uh, on residuals at all. And the reason for that is that the Directors Guild is starting negotiations this Wednesday, uh, and um, they are going to focus laser-like on residuals. And there are there are two sets of things that they want to do. One is they want to improve the existing formula within its existing framework. Uh, among other things, the, the, the only external input to the existing formula, I should say, is not viewership, but is the size of the platform. Right. So if Wednesday were on a a smaller platform, on
1: course,
2: <laughs> or bread box, right. Or whatever. It would pay lower residuals. Um, that subscriber count that is used to describe, to decide which bucket a service falls in, only looks at domestic socks,
1: well, no, it does not look no,
2: that, at worldwide. They wanted
1: to include worldwide, of course. They're saying if you won't tell us how big a hit a show is, then we'll say, well, it's on a platform that reaches potentially 400 300 million people worldwide, therefore you know and, you're not going to tell us pub- anything. Yeah, yeah,
0: and you're a public company and you report that to Wall Street, and so we know that. But you, you kind of hit right. on a there's you yeah. hit on so many things here, you hit on many rooms. There, that's an argument that the writers have. Well, he he covered that, yeah. And well, mini rooms, the, the question has always been like, what's a mini room? You know, like there were a lot of people complaining about mini rooms and one of the jokes actually in Puck, I might add, was what's a mini room? Uh, and so there's that. But you also hit on something that was that's kind of flew under the radar for a while until this week, and that is normally the DGA goes first in these negotiations. They've let the Writers Guild go first twice, once in 2007 when there was a strike and this year when there is a strike. And they did that because they knew like, well, if the writers are striking, then we come in and go, so why don't we negotiate? You want two people? You know, it would be a shame if you had two people striking against you at the same time. In 2007, the directors actually cut a deal, which then of course kind of took all the air out of the balloon for the writers. They were like, well, all right, I guess, you know, we'll take what they got and uh, we're going to look silly if we don't.
1: But they're on the same page this time. This time they're on the same
2: page. It's uh, it's a little more complicated. Let me add a couple of things. First of all, I want to add the other thing that the, to, to finish the, put a bow on what we were just talking about. The other thing the director's guild is looking for is an additional. And well, so they want to improve the current formula by taking account of internet, of worldwide subs. That's going to have to be, uh, have a weighting factor to it, a weight. A sub in, a sub in,
1: in in India, in, in India. India is $4, you know, $2. Dollar. Dollar.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, but you know that's that is doable uh, the other and and of course they want to increase some of the percentages and the dollar figures and so forth that are input into the formula. but the other thing they want to do so that's all within the parameters of the existing formula is they want to add an overlay an additional formula that kicks in in success and it would require sharing of some sort of data uh, on how the show is doing now, I, I want to talk about how, how shows make, popular shows make money for the streamers because there are different ways. And then, we'll, Sterling, I will get back to- um, What a mini-rubin is. No, Oh, to the, to the Directors Guild and the-, and the whether the they undercut writer. the writers, yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a popular show makes money by attracting, by, you know, we, we see it, we say there's lots of viewers. But actually, lots of viewers cost them money. Because they have to serve more streams, and the content distribution network charges them um, for that. That's not how they. That's not literally how they make money. Uh, They make money from advertising uh, now because there are ad-supported tiers of Netflix where you pay a sub fee that's lower, but you, you know, Netflix and um, uh, and Max, it's now called HBO Max and Disney Plus. Um, They make money through subscriber attraction. A popular show attracts new subs. They make money through subscriber retention. A popular show keeps the subs on as long as they're popular shows, especially unlike Netflix, you know, HBO, where things are released week by week. If you like Succession, you, you sign up for HBO because of it and you stay until Succession is over. Um, and, you know, and then maybe you cancel, you churn out. Uh, churn is the word. Um, and then for other streamers, for Netflix, that's it, that's how they make money. But for Apple, having video burnishes the brand and that makes uh, Apple products more attractive in people's eyes. It may also attract people to the Apple TV box, which then becomes a gateway into buying an iPhone and so forth. But the most interesting is Amazon. Jeff Bezos said years ago, having video as part of Amazon Prime attracts people to sign up for Prime, number one. And separately, he said, Prime... subscribers, whether they watch video or not, over-index in purchasing behavior because they like the free shipping. And thirdly, at a third separate occasion, he said, when we win a Golden Globe, we sell more shoes. It's that direct. Amazon, you know, Netflix wants to keep your, su- you subscribing for your subscription fee. Amazon, you think the $150, you know, or whatever it is for Amazon Prime That's now? Good is, is that in- That's apparently? good money. That's good money. Yeah, but the margins that they make on the products that they sell, they are…
1: But most most of the know. most of their business is other people selling stuff. They're just a conduit. They're as a platform. Yeah, they, they don't even sell stuff. The majority of the traffic on Amazon is third-party companies using their platform to sell stuff. And Amazon is the gatekeeper who…
2: It, who charges those third parties if, up it, the watch If we're
0: talking yeah. about if Amazon, not. we are so far off track. <laughs> well, we're <laughs> I mean, not, though. No
2: we're not. no, we're not. We're not. That's exactly… That's exactly the point. And these company the streamers, have different interests. They don't care about,
1: about a library. That you get.
2: They, they, they care less about it. Yeah. it it's yeah. not a laser-focused thing the way it is for Netflix versus, say, for Amazon. It's a little bit less of an issue. And the other thing about the three streamers, since we're talking about them, this strike is going to last into the summer. That'll destroy, as I think I alluded to, the, the fall broadcast, as likelihood of destroying the fall broadcast season. Well, guess who's happy to see that happen? Netflix, Apple, and Amazon, all of whom are members of the alliance that is negotiating. These companies have divergent interests from the from the legacy media companies, especially the three legacy companies that own networks. Uh, if there's no new content scripted to watch on broadcast in the fall, I guess I'll watch Netflix instead.
1: Well, that brings us to our next point. The um, what's crystal clear from talking to you is that things have dramatically changed in the business. So when the writers say, hey, we need to renegotiate and figure out this new world here. They have a very valid point. So many things have changed in so many ways and the interests have diverged. And that brings us to the length of the strike. Sperling, you say this strike is going to last at least 70, 80, 90 days because the studios wanted to, because they want to, they want to have force majeure and tear up the contracts that they have. They can clean house. The the head of AMC theater chain said, well, he's on an earnings call. So he just wants to know It's not going to impact us. We're going to be fine for, for right now. But if it lasts a few months, time, then that's going to hurt us down the road. And Judd Apatow, right. the creator says, you know what? The studios know when they're going to end this. They know exactly what they're going to give on, on. There's no reason to draw this out. but they." Want this to be dragged out a certain amount of time, and they know exactly what they're going to do and when they're going to do it.
2: Well, it's going to last at least eight weeks. That that's the trigger for force majeure—six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So that's fifty-six days. But then there's nothing driving a, an immediate solution, uh, and that gets to uh, to the point—the the hanging point we have here about Spurling and the, the Spurling raise about the DGA and fifteen years ago. What ended the strike fifteen years ago was two things. Uh, first of all, the DGA did not. 15 years ago, did not let the Writers Guild go first. <laughs> the Writers Guild contract ended expired. First, yeah. It ended for ended much earlier. It ended in November of 2007, whereas the DJs didn't end until June 30th of 2008. Yes, but so, very
0: often the DJ will come in knowing that and say, it, and say hey, let's start negotiating.
2: The, one of the results of, that tr- of the settlement of that strike was the synchronization that we see now. And that in that context, the DGA goes 6 months early and goes and goes first but in the no it wouldn't have made sense for them to go before November that that would have been bizarre what they did do is ultimately uh once you got to about 5 or 6 months out from their expiration right. they want to offer uh January of '08, they did negotiate as you said they did a deal that set the template for in all respects major respects for the writers deal right. That was one factor that, that drove a conclusion, an end to strike. But there was an, there was another uh, coupled with, with strike fatigue, and that was the Oscars. Um, the actors, in solidarity with the writers, destroyed the Golden Globes in January by, by boycotting them and turning them into a cut-rate press conference. The threat was there that the same thing would happen to the Oscars in March. The studios didn't want that for several reasons, the, the companies, I should say. One is, for ABC, which broadcasts the Oscars, It is the second largest television day event of the year after the Super Bowl in terms of ad sales. Secondly, uh, it's a celebration of movie going and the movie companies want people to celebrate movie going. So they'll go to the cinema and watch movies, especially back then. Uh, Thirdly, a lot of the ads, not incidentally, on the Oscars are for upcoming movies. So all of that was a reason that the companies didn't want the Oscars destroyed. And guess what? Even though the writers were the ones threatening to destroy, implicitly threatening to destroy the Oscars with the help of the actors, the writers didn't want the Oscars destroyed either for two reasons. One is um, writers win Oscars and they'd like to have their night in the sun, the date, as it were. But the other is the threat of destroying the Oscars was actually more potent than the actuality of destroying them would have been. Because if they destroyed the Oscars, then what? They didn't have another bullet in that gun. I apologize for using a firearms metaphor, but there there wasn't another arrow in the quiver as a you know an earlier generation of firearms, I suppose. Uh, you know, then what would they have done? So fine, so you screwed up the Oscars, F you. Well, you know, but the strike continues. So they didn't want to to have to actually do that because the land afterwards, the, you know, the terrain afterwards was was rugged and people were had strike fatigue. Uh, And the studios didn't want that to happen, so there was a natural time crunch that created a deadline, and they got a deal done in February, uh, about a month after the director's deal. But there are no Oscars in the summer, uh, obviously. The Emmy campaigning is being affected already, the so-called FYC, for your consideration. Who cares? But who cares? And the Emmys themselves don't happen until September, and the Emmys are not as big a night as the Oscars are even, even back then, let alone now, who, goes, who watches award shows. That, you know, so it's just, it's very hard to see two things. One is, what is the natural driver going to be that will say, now is the time? And the other is, who's going to back-channel this? Who's going to have the discussions? I've spoken with people. There's no
1: Jack Valenti.
2: There's no Jack Valenti. Well, there wasn't a Jack Valenti back in 2007. In, uh, Seven either. I mean, there he wasn't Jack Valenti, but there were people who played that sort of a role. But I have spoken with people close to the agency, to the talent agencies, which may, would be a logical place because talent agencies on the one hand are very corporate and care about lots of money. But on the other hand, they represent writers and actors and directors, of course. So they're sort of, if you want to think of them in a conceptual way, their loyalties to some extent are sort of in, they're supposed to be to the client, but they're their ethos is a bit is in between the writers and the studios. They, they, they understand both. Um, but what I'm hearing is that there really is no one at the major uh, agencies who has a tight enough relationship with the writers guild, especially after the writers guilds campaign against the agencies <laughs> years ago to be able, you know, to have the trust necessary. Now on the company side, the, the the obvious person is Bob Iger. Before Iger returned, there was no one on the company side who had both the stature and the trust uh, of all of the companies to be able to get on the one page and say, look, we're going to have to take some sour grapes, some sour pills, but this is the time. Because Shaypak couldn't even do – couldn't even – the head of Disney at the time. Couldn't keep his own company uh, couldn't, happy. <laughs> couldn't keep his own talent happy. I mean, you know Scarlett Johansson, let alone understanding guilds, which he didn't come from. You know, content creation world. It came from theme parks. Uh, Zaslav, you know, comes from unscripted again, not not unionized content creation. And he's busy burning the furniture in his company, he's cutting shows, and all of that. The other legacy folks are too small to tell Disney and the larger companies what to do. And then there's Netflix, uh, you know, which is very big. But you know, Ted is not somebody that the legacy companies are going to listen to per se as a leader because, first of all. He's happy to see- He has
1: different- different. To
2: see that he has different priorities. First of all, he's to see the destruction of the fall season. And secondly, he's the one, Netflix is the one that got us into this mess, is the traditional incumbent's view. Netflix is the one that started streaming, started these shorter seasons, dragged us all into this new business model. The door slammed shut behind everybody and locked. There's no going back. And now Netflix has to dance to Wall Street's new tune, which is not subscriber growth, but profitability. Uh, as to do, do everyone else. So until Iger came back, uh, how you're going to get the studios and streamers on one page was not clear. Iger's the one, but how you're going to bridge between Iger... And
1: Apple and Amazon and, and Netflix.
2: No, he can... He could do that. He may be able to do that, but how you're going to bridge between that side of the table and the writers requires someone that the Guild will trust. And uh, I have a name or two in mind that I I can't... John Wells. I don't know. John Wells. John Wells. Well, no, he's He's on their side. He's he's a writer. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, So who is it that's going to bridge that's not a writer uh, that's respected by Iger and, you know, could have the trust of Iger and the trust so that, you know, because the way this, at least historically, the way the deal gets made is, you know, a small number of people meet at someone's house in Bel Air. Shonda
1: Rhimes and, you know, yeah.
2: Right, right. But it's gotta be not just the the upper level of the writers guild, but the upper level of the studios mm-hmm. and someone, you know, performing a bridging function. And so it's when you look at those factors together, the force majeure, and by the way, the other thing about force majeure, 15 years ago, um you know, with strike started in November. Uh, two months later, you know, you already had the force majeure terminations in January. So February, the studios had got had squeezed the, the juice out of that lemon, and they were ready to make a deal because they'd done their force majeuring. Here, you're going to see at least eight weeks for force majeure, and then what? The summer grinds on. I mean- People are on vacations months, and- People are on vacations, and two months from now, you know, the fall season is probably already dead. It certainly is, you know, there's not, nothing much left of it. So that's a sunk cost. Um- also, every day that you don't produce content is a day that your balance sheet looks better because you're not expending money on producing content. It's only later that it hits you when you lose subscribers because you've got crap on your service. But right now, they get to say the street, well, we had, you know, we had some tough quarters the last few quarters. This quarter is looking pretty nice. Our expense sheet looks great. And, right. And we forced majority. You you know, you want to we're going to spend money on content but we're going to do it with discipline and you know what discipline means it means cut 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 renegotiate renegotiate and that's the narrative that they'll be selling the street
0: but what, well, what but let me ask you this so, let's so the dga is i mean this is gonna my theory here and i say this having talked to some dga and wga members is that they they're all like because of the, this confluence this thing could go on for
2: a long time it will go on for a long time, and the DGA deal- What does a long time not, mean? It means into the summer. Well, yeah, uh, well, it's going to go eight weeks, sure. It's going to go at least eight weeks, but it's probably going to go longer. Yeah. Um, the DGA deal, unlike 15 years ago, will not set a template for everything that the writer, writer writers most care about. It will set a residuals template for both the screen actors who are negotiating starting uh, June 7th, and for the Ultimate Writers Guild deal- but only a residuals template. And as we've been talking about, the major issue for the writers is writer specific. It's mini rooms, staffing levels, Spans, staffing and
0: everything. Did you want to explain what a mini right. room is? I mean, I could do no, it. But we, no, we do We, we, we know come. what mini
2: rooms are at this point. Yeah, he covered it already.
0: Yeah.
1: They're,
2: they're uh, you know, in a sentence, they are smaller writer rooms than, than historically. And they are often uh, open before, rather than going to a pilot and doing a pilot and then. If you'd like to pilot, you you, uh, you order you, to series. Yeah, you staff, you order yeah, staff at, up. At least, yeah, and then, you, and then you staff up. You staff up before you've even greenlit the thing, but you only staff up with a small number of writers. And they write, and then you might greenlight. Or you've greenlit it, and then they write, but you often will close the, the room before production starts, as we talked about. So that's a mini room. Uh, not to be confused with a mini computer. You write six wow.
1: episodes before they even begin filming rather than having a staff on hand and you're writing episode four while they're filming episode one and it lasts for 40 weeks. So it's a dramatically different way of doing business. And these writers are fewer, doing more work, and they never even see a, a TV set. They never even know, you know, they've never been on set for a minute.
2: In many, in many cases, you could have a mini yeah. room that continues into production, but, um, but in- and I, don't, I couldn't tell you what proportion do versus don't, but it's a growing. It's at the very least, very minimum, so to speak. It's a growing problem, according to the writers' guild. One we haven't qu- even um, talked
0: about late-night television and how
2: they. No, want to no, do we're not rights. talking about
1: that. One last question is about other unions. The studios, uh, the writers <laughs> thought maybe studios thought they could just move production overseas. They could go to the UK. They could go to Australia, New Zealand, Spain, France, England, and uh, they're saying you know what, we're actually seeing a lot of strong solidarity from unions and writers' guilds all over the world. And there's a lot more recognition that this is the same fight they need to fight. Though in the UK, there's a lot more instances of small runs of TV shows and shows being written by one or two people. So there's a history of that. So it's that's not so unusual to them, that that's that right. change. Right. So they fought this battle to a degree, maybe, but they also recognize that they're in the same boat. And so the writers here in the WGA say, we're seeing a lot more solidarity around the world than maybe the studios expect. Do you see that at all? Is that happening?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, the Writers Guild Great Britain, and things went back and forth. For example, things went back and forth. At first, they, quote-unquote, advised their members not to take work uh, from struck companies. Struck companies means companies that they're on strike st- the yeah. against, Netflix, and so forth. Um, they then uh, sort of upped that to something a little more definitive. Um I'm not aware of statements from the Writers Guild of Canada. Um, so I don't know. Um, uh, you know, and in addition, I'm not aware of any statements from from guilds, if any, in foreign languages. And Netflix has pioneered as tons a- Tons of literate. production. Yeah, tons of productions in foreign languages. What do the, what are the are Korean writers like? think? Yeah. What are the Korean and the French and the German? Uh, so yeah, there's an attempt to- there is a growing recognition of solidarity. There's an international. I think it's called the International Affiliation of Writers' Guilds uh, that the guild is a member of and uh, communicates through. Um, it's the international internationalization of the business is a very uh, is a very key issue. And the Writers Guild is the Writers Guild is also trying to avoid leakage domestically. For example, a lot of non-guild uh, early writers. Have posted their scripts on the blacklist, which is an online platform. You, know, you post your script, and some scripts, you know, have gone to have been bought off the blacklist and gone to production, you know, or gone to representation and then production. Um, the black the the blacklist actually sent out a very unusual message to an email blast to all of its users. It was an email blast written and signed by the Writers Guild, and it said, "If you're tempted as a non-union member who's not bound by the strike we rules. We will
1: never work with you.
2: We will never admit you to the guild ever, if you violate the strike rules. Don't do it. It's not the way to begin a career. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah, etc. Which so they are they are making every effort to. And, avoid. and
1: the Writers Guild of Canada released a statement saying this is the same fight we are fighting. Their issues are our issues. We are going to support them to the fullest extent possible. And then they detail: if you're a dual member, do this; if you're not, do that. But they have uh, very strongly so spoken you're, up and said, you're
2: Not, I mean, so that's, that's, that's words of solidarity, but what do you, you know, do if, if, if you're Martin writing Scorsese writing.
0: or you're Wes Anderson and you've got movies appearing in Cannes, you're not supposed to promote movies, but your, your movies are in the Cannes Film Festival and you're a writer and you're a director. You're a member of the WGA. You, do you well, show uh, up?
1: Do you go? A member of the WGC says you cannot accept struck work. If you are a member of the WGC and a Canadian resident, uh, you may continue to work under the independent production agreement, but you may not accept struck work. Struck work includes anything that normally is a WGA show, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they look like they're putting some teeth behind their statement of solidarity.
2: Sounds like that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it does sound like that. And, and of course, that's the, uh, the direction that the Writers Guild is urging people in. Um, the, and in a crosswise, uh, uh, you know, non-writer uh, area of solidarity, the Teamsters have stated Teamsters do not cross picket lines. Casting directors Uh, are a member of the Teamsters, by the way. Casting directors and also, of course, truck drivers. Yeah. We have the ability to shut down. Everything. 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 Right. Uh, The IA has said it's a little complicated, depends on your local and the exact language of the no strike clause in your local. But um, they then outlined, and in many cases, um, people, uh, they, they said you are they they said or argued as the case may be, because some cases the agreements are silent on this, uh, that you have the right not to cross lines. But the employer has the right to replace you as an IA member with somebody else, but they can't permanently fire you only for the duration of your refusal to work. The actors and directors have very strict no and the writers uh have very strict no strike clauses. You can't go on strike while your contract is still while the contract's still in effect. So the writers could not have said, gee, we want to go on strike a week early. Uh, the directors and uh, actors cannot say we want to go on streak, strike before June 30th when our contracts expire.
0: So, but um, but what is Wes Anderson and Martin Scorsese? Do do they promote their movies or do they, I mean, how do they, as directors, I guess they can say we can talk about the directing. I can't talk about the writing of it. I mean. Uh,
2: well, it's not clear. No, it's not. It's not necessarily that clear. And the Writers Guild uh, m- very likely would take the position that um, your membership uh, in the Writers Guild uh, trumps the fact that you're a member of other guilds that are not on strike. Uh, this guild is on strike. You're, you're a person who is a member of the guild and you are now proposing to cooperate with a struck company and uh, help them gain more income, more prominence for a film and more income from the film ultimately by more prominence. Um, uh, you cannot do that. Uh, that's uh, that is the view I suspect that the writers guild would take.
1: All right, Sperling, you're headed uh, to Con. You make sure you hold their feet to the fire.
2: Tackle
0: I'll tackle Martin Scorsese. Now, hey, you can't, what are you doing here?
2: You can't walk. Now the company point, the company point of view would probably be the point of view that, that, that you just expressed, uh, sprawling. And we see this with in the writer context with writer producers. Um Disney and several others, but especially Disney, uh, have set out sent out very strict uh, emails, letters uh, to their writer producers, to the showrunners, uh, yeah, to the showrunners in particular, uh, saying that you have to continue your producing duties if, if you know, requested on the particular show, and if it's going on, um, it, you know, if the show is still in in production, and in fact, you have to perform what are called A through H duties, which are writing services that non-writers can perform, and it doesn't turn them into writers, but if a writer performs them, they're still writing services according to the and so uh, arguably anyways and there's a i wrote about this in pop uh there's some ambiguity not a lot and so the writers guild strike rule says it says you can't do these so-called a through h services the companies disney says you have to do your a through h services even if the writers guild levies a fine on you for breaking the strike and did rules. they offer
1: to pay that fine
2: by the way no, but they, but the, the, impl- the implication is if you don't perform that we'll work, fire you. be in yeah. well, you'll be in reach of contract and we can terminate the contract potentially. Yeah.
1: Well, it's not going to end. We'll be have you on every week to discuss this over <laughs> the next three months. <laughs>
2: Uh, that's uh, careful with that commitment. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do it. But, uh,
1: <laughs> All right. Well, we we uh, we're, we're going to send people to puck.news. News. Uh, I don't think we can link directly to your work there because of the the paywall. But we can at least send you to the I, website. No,
2: you can. You can. You you can, can yeah. Actually. I'm a subscriber. Uh, how do we do it? A, uh, I'll send you. I'll send you the link.
1: I'm sure. Sprung's I mean, a subscriber. I'm sure.
2: It's it's a really no, there's, it's there's, it's worth it.
0: It really is. There's a very very good. Thank you.
2: Yeah. No. We are. We, we try to do uh, really strong journalism and journalism that you won't find in, you know, elsewhere. Um, and, I'll, and I'll send the link that you, that you need. Great. And when you
1: need a podcast, just let us know. Uh, well, we, you know, when you got breaking news, we'll come back on the show. But we hope to have you on again without pestering you too much. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: I'm glad to do it. Thank you guys for having me and um, to be continued. Well,
1: it was great of Jonathan Handel to join us. I, I learned some stuff, had some ideas that I had reinforced, so that's always good. It seems like we had a pretty good idea what was going on, but that was fascinating, especially about uh, the n- amount of work. There are more shows, but there aren't more episodes, so it all, you know. You know, it, gets it comes really, out in the wash, you know. It's just like, no, yeah. there's not that much more work, and in fact, it's cut up in much smaller slices, so there's a lot less work to go around. Because instead of getting one good job for a year, you're getting one job that lasts three months.
0: <laughs> right, and 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 I kind of mentioned it in passing the the night. The, uh, the night you know late night talk show thing oh there's a
1: ton of stuff we didn't yeah. cover yeah 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 there's yeah. so much late night has already stopped lots of TV shows are getting uh, people are striking and they're having to shut down that's where you're seeing the first impact. Late Nights Going Dark, except on Fox News, because they have a, a late night show with writers who are not in the WGA. Of course they do. <laughs> yeah, well, of course and they, they say, do. look,
0: it's news, sort of. Not really. But you no, know, no, no,
1: I, it's a talk show. They recognize it, but they're just not okay. in the WGA. <laughs> oh, well, you know,
0: uh, one of the things that used to be you got like a 13-week contract if you were a writer on, let's say, The Daily Show. Now they're like, no, let's just do a day rate. It's like, what? You got to fight for your job every day? Yeah. So they're like, yeah, we need more security than that. We can't move to New York City. And then, I mean, moving to a place that costs that much, that's a lot of
1: money. This is May. We're looking at August before this thing gets uh, wrapped up, if at all. And as Jonathan pointed out, the the push and the need to wrap it up is complicated because there's no clear leader on the side of the studios. I'll and do it competing interests between the traditional studios and the major networks versus Apple, Amazon, and Netflix. So it's a, that's a big mess. They wanted to go on for uh, uh, eight weeks, at least six to eight weeks. And there's no particular need pushing them to end it after that. So hopefully they'll, you know, once they get their eight weeks and can clean house, that they'll be, you know, impelled. Maybe the DGA meeting with them will help as well. If they uh, are playing hardball, that will help them get serious sooner. But it's going to be, a strike is a big deal. There's no doubt about it.
0: Yeah, it's a big deal. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. If a strike is a big deal, I wonder what you think about, uh, you know, the fact that uh, it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Here's our first story. I'm trying to raise eleven billion dollars. Do you know why, Michael? Why? So that I can actually buy uh, Paramount Global because it lost twenty five percent of its uh, of its market cap. This, so it's only eleven billion dollars now. So when does Apple come and buy it? And um, by the way, do you know that Paramount Global produces uh, Yellowstone? i did yeah well yellowstone is dead kevin costner is gone and so is the tv series yes that's right yellowstone is dead long live yellowstone paramount made it official that kevin costner is walking away from the smash hit series yellowstone they will be launching a new spinoff in december that will contain yellowstone in the title much of the original cast and possibly matthew mcconaughey in the lead role all right all right all right uh and yes uh, by the way, episodes will stream on Paramount Plus. Had tip
1: to our listeners for pointing that out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There's not a bad thing for them. They're like, we don't want to end the show, but by God, if we do, at least the spin off will be ours.
0: <laughs> right. Well, while you never want to bring a hit show to an abrupt end. Pretty much everyone should be happy here. Costner gets to ride off into the sunset and we say that on purpose because uh, he's going to work on his passion project, a Western called Horizon. You see, because the sunset is on the mm-hmm, horizon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, it's a four film, four film. That's right. It's a four film series with each movie about three hours long. So, you know, the average length he's going to be busy. Paramount keeps the Yellowstone trainer rolling along with a show called Yellowstone, a new era of Yellowstone or Yellowstone, the next generation, or I don't know. We don't know. And Matthew McConaughey will be too busy to run for governor of Texas or president or whatever he's doing now, at least for the time being uh, big
1: deal or big whoop. Uh, I would love to be Matthew McConaughey's agent. <laughs> they have not signed a deal, but they've announced the show and it's going to begin in December. <laughs> you know, they've not, they're like, they need a new lead. They want it to be Matthew McConaughey. He's like, well, okay, let's, uh, let's, all right, all let's right, yeah, yeah, all right. exactly. That would be, that's, that's being in the catbird seat, I'll tell you that. And by the way, I wrote, Yellowstone is dead, long live Yellowstone. I wrote that before Rolling Stone used the exact same headline in uh, one of their stories. So it's I was not plagiarizing Rolling Stone. Not that you would know it, because this is coming out much later. But the Tony Award nominations were announced as well. That's some more big news. And uh, there was a bit of a surprise. There was a fair amount of support for shows that have already closed. Usually... If your show opens in the fall, it's not in front of mind. So come springtime when they do the nominations, that might hurt you. But as long as you're still running, you're in the running. If your show closes in the fall, usually that holds you back, but that has not been the case for the plays. We're looking at shows that have already closed like Ain't No Mo and uh, and so on, and they got a lot of love. So in under best play, so that's cool to see. But the usual suspects are up there this season. The best musical are And Juliet a British jukebox musical, Kimberly Akimbo, the best-reviewed musical of the season, New York, New York, which was not the best-reviewed show of the season, Shucked, a corn-pone sort of hee-haw type comedy musical with songs by some country singer-songwriters and Some Like It Hot based on the classic movie that has proven to be one of the bigger disappointments of the season. It's really not catching fire with audiences. You could make an argument for any of the shows really except for New York, New York, uh, but I think it's pretty clear the best-reviewed show of the season, Kimberly Akimbo, will probably be Best Musical.
0: How, what did what did uh what was the word on the coast starlight? I guess it was the Lincoln Center play uh what uh i mean i I asked that because I, I guess it was why do you ask anybody. that
1: what well, nobody was expecting it to be. What are you talking about
0: <laughs> okay you know, I asked that because Keith Bunin wrote it, and I went to school with Keith Bunin, so that's why I was asking but
1: where did it play? What's it called Lincoln Center no, but where in Lincoln Center was it a Broadway house or was it the off Broadway house? Oh, I don't know. Well, if you it's that, not in the Broadway did. house, it wasn't eligible for a Broadway, uh, for a Tony. It has to be playing. At the New-
0: Mitzi E. Newhouse Theater. How do you spell it? The Coast Starlight? coastal, The Coastal Starlight, well, sorry. Well, that, that matters. <laughs> Is the Mitzi E. Newhouse Theater a... Uh, it might a- be. It might be. Yeah, well, maybe it's not. Maybe it was considered off-Broadway.
1: Well, it depends. The Mitzi might be Broadway eligible. It's certainly not the main space for plays there, but uh, I'm not familiar with that play. But yeah, uh, mostly the shows that were expected to be nominated were nominated, and we'll have to see who wins in plays. I think it could be hip plays like Ain't No Mo' or Fat Ham, which won the Pulitzer. It could be Between Riverside and Crazy. It could be Cause Living, but I'm guessing it will be the stolid, old-fashioned, swan song for playwright Tom Stoppard, Leopold Stodd, which is still running and is, you know, a big old fashioned show about the Holocaust, about being Jewish, about, uh, it's a final play f- probably from one of the great playwrights of our lifetime. So I'm guessing it will be Kimberly Akimbo and Leopold Stodd. And I would put money on Kimberly Akimbo.
0: Well, You know, none of these uh, people are in BAFTA, I believe.
1: Um, No, I'm sure they are. I'm sure Tom Stoppard's in BAFTA. Nice try. Uh, Just go uh, on to the next story.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, BAFTA, the UK equivalent to both the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the TV folk over at the Emmys, uh, they released new data on their membership. Here's the confusing way it broke membership down. According to Variety, BAFTA said as of May 2023, the membership is 42 to 58 female, male. So that's 60% from... Un- underrepresented ethnic groups, 7% with a disability and 12% LGBTQIA+. Plus. You know, there's 27, 27. Keep going, yeah, keep okay. going. In English, not British, but English, that means the vast majority of the people in BAFTA are white men. Almost 60% are male and almost 50, 85% are white. The BAFTAs said the gold of diverse nominees and winners should be addressed by increasing membership, not quotas, for categories. Big deal or big whoop.
1: Well, um, let's look at how they reflect the actual population. Uh, Whites make up about 83 to 87% of the UK. There's 63 million people in the United Kingdom. Uh, 51% of the population identify as female, slightly more than 50%. So in terms of ethnicity, they're actually not bad. They're fairly accurate in terms of the entire population of the UK. If you're looking at London, of course, uh, they're falling way down. And when you look at London, that's a very diverse city. It's the heart of the entertainment business in the UK. And so they're clearly falling down on the job there. But in terms of the overall population, uh, about 16, 17% is people of color. So that, uh, that's not so bad, 85% white. They're not so far off the population, but you don't wanna just reflect the exact population. You wanna have a diverse growing body. Uh, and certainly in terms of women, Only 42% of the members are women, when in fact over 50% of the people in the population are women. So there's a lot of growth that could be done there. They could increase by 20% the number of women uh, if the men maintained the same, and you'd start to catch up and bump their numbers up. So they got a lot of work to do on women. They're doing better than you would think in terms of overall ethnicity because they are reflecting the population as a whole. Doesn't mean they don't have work to do and that the nominees and winners shouldn't better reflect both their membership and the great work that's being done. But, you know. Uh, 16% of the population is people of color. 16, 17% of the population of the BAFTA is people of color. Not a reason to be complacent, but not a reason to point and yell either.
0: You know, uh, that theory or that, that methodology, not theory. Methodology? Methodology? Uh, it- the The methodology of looking at the population and yeah. then looking at the percent, yeah, um, it's it seems to be a sound one because uh, there was a huge complaint about UCLA, uh, the the percentage of Asian uh, population kind of over over trending. Uh, it was like thirty percent at one point uh, of you know the the Asian uh, population at UCLA, and so eventually people just said, well, what's the percentage of Asian population in the state of California? It's a state school, and it was fifteen percent. And so the Asian population was was thirty uh, percent. The white population at UCLA was twenty six percent.
1: Well, here's, and then here's where here's Latino where Latino was kind of here's where you're dropping the ball. What is the population of people who are eighteen and entering college? In which case, you're going to see a much higher representation of people of color uh, at that time. The same is true, of course, in the UK. Are you talking about the entire population? They're not doing so bad. If you're looking about people under thirty, and thus the people who are entering into the business, uh, I'm sure they. They are far more diverse than those numbers indicate and that they need to be doing a much better job of making sure their membership is reflecting the new young blood that's coming in. So it's it's not a it's not a great job, but it's just a way of saying well, stepping back, not so bad. However, young people and the people the audience of the future is much more diverse than 85 15% and they need to do a better job.
0: Author James Patterson just sold his 100 millionth book. Wow. Okay, yeah, okay, not just sold his 100th million book. We're speaking metaphorically here. He recently passed 100 million copies of his books sold according to Patterson's publisher. But wait, that's not 100 million copies in his career, okay? That's 100 million copies of books officially sold according to Bookscan since it started tracking actual book sales in 2004 now why am i putting an emphasis on all of this because i actually interviewed james patterson in 2001 on the film along came a spider he was already a best-selling author back then oh and those, yeah the, those those books weren't even being tracked in any case one type of format it doesn't cover all of those books can't they? ebooks which just happens to be the most popular format for current fiction bestsellers for the Kind of books that James Patterson writes in that same time span. Dr. Zeus sold 83 million copies. They're followed by JK Rowling at 65 million copies. Jeff Kinley at 63 million copies. Nora Roberts at 51 million. Mary Pope Osborne of Magic Treehouse fame at 49 million and John Grisham at 42 million. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? And where the heck is Stephen King on this list? And is the book my daughter just bought uh, that 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 counterfeit book?
1: Part of this. No, it probably, I'm not sure it would be. Probably not because I doubt it was a new copy. Right? You said there were, it was. Well, you said there were lines and things written in it and there were underlined. No, no, no,
0: no. Meaning that the print version of the book my daughter bought actually was typeset in underline, it was just oh, the, the whole weirdest thing.
1: The whole thing. Yeah, well, they got they got a copy from a third-party company that probably is not registered and would not count. It might count as a book. I don't think BookScan tracks Amazon sales. They don't. I, no, I would think they, they, they don't. don't. These are mo- mostly point-of-purchase sales. So you think about that. Amazon is the number one bookseller in the country. They also dominate in e-books. So there's a lot of books not being covered here. James Patterson sold his uh, had his first published novel in 1976, about 30 years, 25 years before you interviewed him. So yeah, he's been a big author for a long time. Time. This is just one one sliver of all the books he has sold. My goodness!
0: And you want to feel like totally uh, like an underachiever? When I interviewed him, he had this BlackBerry because that Blackberries were a thing then, right? And it was like brand new. You know, this BlackBerry. ooh, cool! Uh, and he was answering email on it for his company that he worked for. He was running an advertising firm,
1: right? Yeah, he was. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and so writing was like a like his night job. I was like. So you're a best selling author at night and you are an advertising executive. I am not doing enough. In any case, uh, I, I don't know how to dance either which is going to be a problem if I want to go on Dancing with the Stars now that it's back on ABC. I mean, TV is getting crazy as everyone tries to figure out what should stream and what should be on broadcast at Disney. They've just decided that Dancing with the Stars should air live on network TV. After one season on Disney Plus, it's returning to ABC. Tyra Banks, of course, is gone, but the show will be back bigger than ever. Or so they say. Also coming to ABC is 911, the biggest primetime hit among 18 to 49 year olds. It was airing on Fox, but the per episode fee wasn't making any sense for Fox, which used to own the show until the studio was sold to Disney. Now that Disney owns Fox, you know, Fox said, hey, you know what? You take it, ABC. They'll keep the sign, the spinoff. So Fox will still have the spinoff, 911 Lone Star. Which is younger and thus still cheaper for them.
1: Big deal or big whoop? Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the economics that they're fasting. Plus, its sixth season ends in May with 94 episodes. Remember when that was the magical era? You know, hit 100, and go into syndication. They'll probably still do that. It's a show with pretty self contained episodes along with season long arcs, but they do have, you know, exciting rescues every single episode. Uh, and Lone Star with Rob Lowe was just in its fourth season, but they're not charging so much that Fox can't afford to do it. So, Fox, the TV network, is Separate from Fox the Studio, which Disney now owns. So Disney Well, we bought the studio, we might as well buy the show. It's a crazy world.
0: Well, of course, there's a world video game hall of fame. There has to be. It contains 40 video games, including the four new inductees, and it began welcoming games in 2018. It's part of the National Museum of Play in Rochester, and that's Rochester, New York, and a major expansion will open to the public on June 30th. That 90,000 square foot space will include interactive displays Ooh. of video games, including the newest members of the Hall of Fame. The four new members are computer space from 1971. Barbie fashion designer from 1996, We Sports from 2006, and The Last of Us from 2013. Attendance is expected to grow from 600,000 people annually to 1 million, and I have a great name for that new space. What you should probably call it, like you know, an
1: arcade. Oh, that would be what fascinating. I fascinating. Yes.
0: Yeah. You can, you can write that one down. That one's free of charge. Okay. Uh,
1: big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop, of course, but I think they're doing a good job. When you look at the list of the 40 games, they are all iconic games and are clearly in there for substantial, interesting reasons, and that certainly is the case here. Computer Space was the first arcade video game to be offered to the general public. It wasn't actually a big hit, but it proved that they weren't just going to be in, you know, screens at college universities, which is where I saw my first online game. Uh, Barbie Fashion Designer was the Really, first big hit geared towards girls. When they made it, people are, "Can you make video games for girls? Will they actually do it?" And it actually allowed you to print out designs you created on fabric, so it was really you know interactive and took you know stretched out into the real world in in the way a lot of video games never have. And we sports, of course further expanded the idea of who could be a gamer, joining everyone from little kids to senior citizens. And The Last of Us, of course, is trendy, sure. But it's also one of the most acclaimed video games of all time. And uh, you see that same story for all the 40 games that are here. But the Hall of Fame, the, 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 what's it called? The um, uh, National Museum of Play looks really cool. I want to go there. They're also working on developing a whole thing devoted to game shows, including old sets and stuff. I just learned about this in reading a story about lost episodes of Jeopardy and it sounds kind of really cool. I'd like to go.
0: Well, that brings us to Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Here's how they affect you this week, okay? It's been a big week in music with Ed Sheeran triumphing in court. Live concert attendance has exploded. You're going to be paying more for tickets, so just get used (laughs) to it. AI is both creating music and listening to it. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has some new members. So hold on to your seats. I'm going to let, I'm going to give Michael five minutes and Total.
1: go. Dun, 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 uh, dun, dun, dun. Okay. Okay. All right. Do the first one.
0: Well, Ed Sheeran, uh, you know, he is just thinking out loud here. Okay. But, uh, and that's how he wrote thinking out loud. He was just thinking out loud. He's like, Marvin Gaye had nothing to do with it. He was not found guilty of. No. Plagiar- he, was, plagiarizing. he was found
1: not guilty. You said not found guilty. <laughs> that's true, I guess, well, technically, but that's a weird way yeah. to say it. He was found not guilty.
0: <laughs> yeah, he did. Of, of plagiarizing Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On with his hit song, Thinking Out Loud. Now, I guess this one of the smoking guns here was that Sharon in concert segued back and forth from his song, let's get it on. And, and, you know, between his song and let's get it on. Calm, and in calm Sheeran, down, to, calm down, calm down,
1: catch your breath. Yeah. I, I think, I think Jonathan Handel was so exciting a guest that, uh, that yes, you got very, very hyped up. So in court, uh, the, the prosecution or however you call it in this sort of civil case said, look at this. Here's Ed Sheeran in concert. The, the Plaintiff segue. Thank you. Say, Se- well, the lawyer for the plaintiff segue in yeah. concert from his song, thinking out loud right into Marvin Gaye's let's get it on. There you go. What right. could be clearer? So Sharon's lawyer said, uh-huh. Put Ed on the stand, handed him a guitar, and then Ed showed how he can segue from thinking out loud to let's get it on then from let's get it on to another song to another, and how you can segue from a gazillion songs because they're all built on these same basic building blocks of three chords and the truth. So it's really not demonstrative of anything. And in fact, in the case, there was no accusation that he copied the lyrics or the melody. It's like, well, what did he copy? Oh, the chords and the rhythm, which I guess is a little better than the Blurred Lines case where they said, well, you copied the feel of the song. That, that case is what we're talking about here. Blurred Lines was this landmark case in which the people who owned Marvin Gaye's got to give it up, sued, and they won, and it was a travesty. It was just a ridiculous, ridiculous ruling, and it's had shockwaves throughout the industry. People are giving credit to songs where they wouldn't need to otherwise. People are suing more when they wouldn't have before, and there's a really big hope that this case may stop the madness. And there are multiple articles from lawyers and songwriters and people in the industry saying maybe this will be a bulwark and people will say, oh, hold on a second. We shouldn't cave in and pay money when we didn't rip somebody off and sanity will prevail again, that maybe this case will be seen as the one that sets the standard rather than the outlier of blurred lines, which is, well, it feels the same. (laughs) It's like that's not copying. That's not plagiarizing. So there's a huge sigh of relief from the industry it's a very big case. Maybe people can go back to being creative and not checking with their lawyer every time they do a rhyme that may have existed once before in history.
0: You know what? Uh, if you really want to see how those four chords work, search for Axis of Awesome on YouTube. Mm-hmm. They have a a video. It's been, I mean, 47 million times it's been viewed or something like that. Uh, it's called Four Chords, and they go through songs from Journey through... I mean every hit song you can think of Lady Gaga Paparazzi and uh, and they basically play the same four chords and show how you can transition from song to song Exactly and it's, that's pretty much yeah. it's, he's, he's yeah. right
1: Live Nation by the way hit a record quarter and there was record attendance at live music at their venue so last week we told you Live Nation had pissed off Taylor Swift screwed up a Bad Bunny event and been publicly shamed in congressional hearings and yet its CEO made big bucks why? because business is good and here's more proof the first quarter of 2023 scored a record 3.1 billion dollars in revenue for the ticketing and live venue giant it also sold a record 19.5 million tickets to fans at its own venues, and 145 million tickets were processed by Ticketmaster. Now you can do your Canada Reeves imitation.
0: People keep asking if live music is back. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking it's back. Um, I. By the way, the, the smoking gun in this particular uh, earnings call uh. was they were looking at the price of tickets being sold on, you know, on the, for the on sale. So like when tickets go on sale mm-hmm. to this Thursday and they were looking at the price of tickets for Actually, uh, the, the secondary market. And they were
1: like, wow, there's such a big gap there. So we're
0: leaving a lot of money on the table. We need to raise ticket prices.
1: <laughs> They're making money off the resale, too. Yeah. How about just pick a price and then make sure you don't give it to scalpers? Tell us what's yeah, happening with does. AI.
0: Um, I can't because AI has programmed me now to not know. To, well, uh, there's a head spinning possibility with okay. AI. AI allows people. We didn't even talk about that with Jonathan. Hammond. We didn't have time. I uh, know. Well, AI allows people to generate music tracks at the push of a button. Then bots at a streaming farm generate fake plays for all those tracks. And the criminals who created this loop of creating and playing music where humans are never involved, actually harvest hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties and sell my daughter a book <laughs> for *Death of a Salesman*. Uh, is, is this the future of music? Uh, where you know we just described that, it.
1: My question, <laughs>
0: yeah, it's the future of music streaming. I guess I, I it's guess. not. No, maybe it's not. not. It's happening no, no. right
1: now. The AI. So you're saying it's the present. It is the AI music act. App- Boomy had tracks it uploaded to Spotify, deleted en masse by the streamer. Why? Because it detected, that is Spotify, fake streams being generated by bots for all this fake music. I'm putting that in quotes. If It's generic music that actual people neither wrote or generally listened to. Now, Boomy is not as fault as such, they say, but every day, more and more artificial music is clogging up the system, and more and more, they're soaking up the money. Maybe up to a billion dollars last year year alone because there's a big pot of royalty payments and if you generate streams you get a cut of it even if you're the only one who played your own music as long as you can generate a billion tracks played of your own stuff you'll get a royalty payment all right so that's the problem there's so much music flooding the system they're having to pay to host it a lot of it is just junk and a lot of it isn't generating any real plays and then a bunch of it is just generating fake plays by bots well there's a solution the user-centric model of subscribing would help end this. So if I subscribe to a service like Spotify, the music that I listen to is what gets a cut of my, my subscription fee. So all the royalties that I pay out go to the people I actually listen to. Now, So if you create an account and generate 1 million streams, well, your account... You had to pay $10 to create it. You get that $10 back. So there's no real gain. (laughs) So you have to actually reach other people and create something other people want to hear. Universal says they're the biggest music company now, And they're like, uh, we want to sort of use user-centric models, but they also want to downgrade playlists because those are generated automatically. They want to downgrade when the algorithm just starts to play a new track once you're done listening to stuff because you didn't actively choose to listen to that. And they want to reward most the music that listeners actually seek out and choose to play. And I think that makes sense. You know, I think a user-centric model works. I think dramatically downplaying the algorithm, you know, just shoving music in your face, I think that makes sense. Just so you turn on the radio doesn't mean you ask to play that particular song. Same thing with playlists. If you actively choose a playlist generated by some actual person, okay, maybe that's different from a generic playlist created by an app. But in general, I would love to see the money I pay go to the actual albums I listen to. And uh, that might help deal with this problem. It is a huge problem. Yeah. Uh,
0: and I do wonder if any of the, uh, the, the acts who are- uh, In the Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Melbourne. Fame, yeah. Yeah, wh- whether they care about, about it or not. Well, I'm they sure care for they the do. future,
1: but yeah, you're right. They've made their bones. They've made their money. So it doesn't yeah. impact them the way it does. New people coming up.
0: Like Kate Bush- Okay, she's in now. Cheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, George Michael, Willie Nelson. Took Willie Nelson 90 years to get into the Rock and
1: Roll Hall of Fame. First year of eligibility. Uh, First year he was nominated, I should say. First year he was nominated. First time on the ballot he got in. But yes, he could have been nominated decades ago. And uh,
0: the spinners and Rage Against the Machine, they're going to show up at the at the ceremony and they're going to testify.
1: Well, no, I, one of the guys said, joked about the, how they would like pour blood on the floor or something. I forget what he said. Do some crazy protests because there's not supposed to be a mainstream band. Also getting into the club of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame under various honors are Shaka Khan. Shaka 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 Khan, hip-hop DJ Cool Herc, guitarist Link Ray, and songwriter musicians Al Cooper and Bernie Taupin, and a great one, Soul Train's Don Cornelius. So uh, they are all going to be in the hall. Missy Elliott is the first female rapper and the 11th rapper overall. Missy Elliott, Sheryl Crow, Nelson, and George Michael are all in on the first time they were on the ballot. And uh, the people I were voting for, Joy Division slash Depeche Mode, A Tribe Called Quest, The White Stripes, Warren Zevon, I gave them all votes on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing along with Kate Bush, but uh, they didn't make it in. But uh, that's a perfectly reasonable uh, cast of people, not the ones I would have chosen, but, you know, some of them, of course. If you're going to have Dolly Parton, of course you should have Willie Nelson too. And, you know, it's a good time for music. At least I get to listen to more music than I ever have before. And I listen to a lot. But the ability to listen to anything right away is so intoxicating. I've really been listening to a lot of catalog music. And people are buying vinyl like they haven't in decades. Record Store Day just happened. And they moved almost 15 million copies of vinyl. That's how much were sold the week of Record Store Day. So it's, uh, you want to pay attention to indie record stores all year long. But hopefully that will help.
0: By the way, mm-hmm. uh, just a word just came in. The Mitzi E. Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center is off-broadway.
1: That's, Yes. Yeah, that's right. So maybe it was nominated for an Obie. Um, but uh, so the, the, your hopes for that for that artist are not dead yet. But unfortunately, some artists are. Singer songwriter Gordon Lightfoot died at eighty four. A major figure in Canadian music, uh, a big star in the sixties and seventies, a mainstay of easy listening radio ever since. If you could read my mind, Sundown. Bob Dylan took the time to induct him into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. So props to him. John Wright, the Oscar-nominated film editor of The Hunt for Red October and Speed, two uh, fun thrillers. He died at the age of 79. He's an Emmy winner and a multiple Oscar nominee. He worked on uh, some well as those two. He worked with Mel Gibson a lot doing The Passion of the Christ, surely the highest-grossing movie of all time in Aramaic. He won an Emmy. <laughs> and also maybe the only movie yeah. of all time. <laughs> yeah, ever don't made. get picky. Uh, he won an Emmy for editing the Glenn Close TV movie, Sarah Plain and Tall, based on the classic young adult novel. And his 90s work was uh, included some peaks like the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair a valley like Arnold Schwarzenegger's last action hero, and even worked on the first X-Men movies, among others. And finally, there's somebody you probably haven't heard of. Singer Linda Lewis died at the age of 72. She's British. If you don't recognize her name, don't worry. You're not alone. She had a top 10 hit in the UK many years ago, and a vocal range so broad it was compared to Minnie Riperton, and Mariah Carey, but mostly she was known by other artists. She worked as a background singer on in the studio and on tour for the likes of David Bowie, Joan Armatrading, Cat Stevens, who she also dated until he became uh, converted to Islam and became a pain in the neck, as she said. <laughs> Rod Stewart she worked with. Her career stretched from playing a teenager screaming in the audience for the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night. She was in the crowd screaming for the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night as a kid then she ended up in the 70s performing at the first Glastonbury Festival in 1970. She was on Bowie's Aladdin Sane album, uh, dated Cat Stevens, and she enjoyed a big hit. That was the cover of a 1963 song called It's In His Kiss which she made a hit in the UK and Cher later covered as the Shoop Shoop song. So you've probably heard of that. And her last collaboration came out in March. So she worked all these years. Why do I know her? Why am I speaking of her? She's cool. She's very good. And there's a great compilation that really makes a great argument for her talent. It's called Reach for the Truth. Rhino put it out in 2002. It's a compilation of her best music from the early 70s when she was on Reprise Records, a great label at the time and still. And you can get it on streaming, Reach for the Truth. I listened to that and said, wow, who is this? That's what a great best of album or compilation can do for an artist. It made me know who Linda Lewis was 20 years ago when she was still living and deserved to be listened to. So if you've got the time, check it out.
0: And we deserve to be listened to. I mean, granted, you listen to us a lot on this week's episode, because, you know, we had a lot to cover music, strike, the, 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 strike, Writer strike. Uh, you see, this is what happens when writers go on strike. We have no form or function. <laughs> uh, the, you know what though? Subscribe to our show in iTunes, Google podcasts, Microsoft marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. Uh, you know, you can Subscribe to us rate review us in some of those places it helps us out when you do uh set up a bot to stream our episodes uh automatically so that we get paid the zero cents per stream that we Uh, uh, maybe actually don't do that since we don't get paid links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website showbizsandbox.com that's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us as well as ways to contact us dirt at email dirt at email no dirt at showbizsandbox.com that's d-i-r-t at showbizsandbox.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 we're on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, Facebook dot com slash Showbiz is where you can uh, like our page. And you know what? Jonathan Handel has a website. It is jhandel.com. dot com. That's G G. No, J as in Jonathan, H-A-N is in Nancy, D-E-L dot com. And that's where you can find some of his work. I'd like to thank him for taking the time to join us this week. Uh, now, the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com? Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week it's he's got us you know, something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? This
1: week it's I wish I were in con.com which very
0: well may be a website. But uh, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to MichaelGilts.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice.